never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. Welcome to the Video Nasties Podcast. My name's Christopher Brown. So let's get this out the way sharpish. 1982 film Honeymoon Horror has some interesting elements in terms of where it came from. And um, interestingly for a film that I don't think it's ever had any kind of real re-release. Um, actually made uh, a bit, quite a lot of money back in the day. Um that said, the film itself not very exciting, and it fits firmly. And um, you know, as we've gone through the video nasties list, there have been these slasher films that haven't really been that you know inspiring, shall we say? Fits very much in that. It's uh, very low budget, for example. However, there is one element that is interesting. The entire film pivots around the work and efforts of one man, a guy called Harry Preston. Harry Preston is the writer and the director of the film. It's the only movie, really, allegedly, that he made. Although it's believed that he he did make another film, but it never saw the light of day. And he is a, a fascinating chap. So before you think to yourself, oh... Can I be asked, you know, listening about uh, another kind of grungy, slappy, slashy, um, slasher film filmed out of, you know, some quiet town in, uh, in America? Let's stop for a second and say, for Harry's sake, let's have a little look at his work. We should have plenty of business this season. Oh, yes, young lovers coming out to Lover's Island. This place fair gives me the willies. I'll be glad to get home tonight. It's a perfect spot for honeymoon. No interruptions. No TV, no telephone. Nothing but this beautiful peace and quiet. Crazy kids. I hope they don't run into jail. You'll scare them to death. Everything like this? It's weird. You don't know the half of it. 
somebody else in the island, but killing all the women. So Harry Preston wasn't born Harry Preston. He's actually born Harry Tim in uh, Durban in South Africa. He's the son of a chemist. Harry was considered to be uh, a bit of a, a child whiz and a quite, quite you know, a, a bit of a teen prodigy, as it were. In fact, he graduated from the youngest person to graduate from his school uh, at the age of 15 and then um, had to wait to join university uh, because you had to be 16 to join. Um, he began writing kids' stories and books while still in his teens. Moved on to a variety of different stuff. Harry was a bit of a, an everyman in terms of achieving what he wanted. So he wrote for you know, commercials, uh, commercial films, uh, for some feature films, um, for um, a lot of novels, ghost-written novels. And um, the reality was that we had a, a soft spot, I think, for being a screenwriter. So he moves to the US in 1948, becomes an American citizen, Changed his name from Pim to Preston, settles and settled in te- Dallas, Texas. Eventually, after after spending time working out in Hollywood, um, and worked in a variety of different things, but mainly was became tied to making lo- some kind of low budget work in audiovisual fields. He was also a journalist and was a news editor at uh, WFAA TV. Uh, at the ABC station in Dallas. And there he wrote a, a documentary called Tornado, which became a... Um, which won a, a, the Sylvania Award, which is a TV news award ceremony thing, which lasted over the 50s. And he also wrote Viewpoint columns and, and Dallas Morning News stuff. So as I said, he spent some time out in uh, California where he joined uh, Metro Gold Mayor as an analyst and we used to work during the rewrites. Um, he also then moved to uh, from the writer's strike, went to, worked in Detroit for uh, Jam Handy Studios for commercials. After the rights in 1967 in Detroit, he goes back to the West Coast and works on fiction and non-fiction books. Now, if you look at the um, the information on him, it, it says he's written 90 books. Now, apparently most of these were ghost-written fast texts. and uh, But he is most famous for a book that he wrote in 1967 um, called Everything a Teenager Wants to Know About Sex and Should, The Books for Better Living, and um, did very, very well indeed. He also wrote um, romance novels, under the pseudonym Vanessa Cartwright. I mean, very much a, a job in writer, getting the work that he could. Supposedly, he's one of the books that he's most proud of was a supernatural horror called Queen of Darkness, which sadly did not sell very well because it was bundled up as a in, in a pulp book deal and uh, he didn't see a penny. Supposedly, he becomes concerned that... Um, in the 1970s, that about uh, earthquakes in, uh, in in 
the in California and decides to move back to te- to Dallas to um, create a new like you know to to, to kind of um, create well, not create a new life for himself but kind of settle down properly. And indeed, in 1989, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award for, in the Corpus Christi Film Festival for his contribution to the Texas film industry. That might sound surprising, considering you know there aren't any fe- real feature films next to his name apart from this one. What he does is he kind of ingrains himself in the Texas film and literary communities and sets himself up as being quite a, a character and a knowledgeable man and, and does lots of training for people. So um, he um, uses his skill set to kind of, you know, almost put himself for the heart of stuff, really. Apparently there's a biography which has not been published, which seems a terrible shame. Okay, so that's kind of the the initial kind of intro into him and uh, certainly a, a fair enough feeling for what he, what he's like so so a lot of information that we've got from in, in terms of how we understand them is based on a quite lengthy um profile piece that appears in the dallas observer in 1996 and it's online now and i recommend you read it anyway because it's fascinating but the thing for me is and when you read it is you can be very aware that preston um is a good myth maker in his own right. You know, when he speaks to the the, the author of the piece, a woman called Anne Zimmerman, he says, just call me the Dorothy Parker of Garland, dear, in a very, uh, very obviously kind of, you know, flamboyant way. Um, the piece tells a, a story of Preston in this role, certainly, of being, um, you know, at, at the centre and kind of being a very tough taskmaster for aspiring writers are basically telling them to write write, write and write as quickly as possible it speaks to them kind of ghost you know getting a job ghost writing a, a script for an affluent um businessman who are kind of you know has aspiration you know retired who has aspirations of uh, breaking into hollywood and, and basically offering to do it quicker uh, than anybody else to get the script together and that being the uh, the key driver because most Hollywood script writers who, you know, will take the money and write, do the script would were saying it would take six months to get it, get, get the piece together. Whereas he, he, he felt he could do it in a matter of weeks. And I suppose that's kind of the, uh, the, the lessons he's trying to pass on to his, um, the people that he works with. So we spoke about before about this uh, this book, this uh, the ni- you know the ninety books that he's written, most of them ghost written, and that sounds such an incredible achievement until you realise that probably he was fucking churning this shit out. But the one that obviously is you know is most famous is this uh, this sex guy book for teenagers, and um, the article takes it says it's quite salacious really it's quite surprising how uh, how much information's in there and the type of information that's in there so it says i read i read that sometimes boys who grew up on farms have intercourse with animals is that really true it's in a q a format and the answer is this yes 
Some kids do it out of devilment, perhaps to show off to their friends. We would classify this as the least desirable form of sex. So well then, uh, at least that's good advice, I suppose. You know, yes, people do fuck animals, but you know, I wouldn't do it if I were you. Um, so the book sells more than a hundred thousand copies, goes into seven printings. Um, and in fairness to, to the author of the article, it does point out that he's definitely a nearly man, you know. And like a lot of people, he, you know, in the article, he does kind of blame low budgets and producers for some of his falsehoods and, and, and stumblings while in the film industry rather than his writing career as a, as a, you know, a novelist or an author. Um, indeed, Dorothy Malone, who won an Academy Award for uh, Best Supporting Actress in 1956 for Written on the Wind, who's a friend, who was a friend of Preston, and lived in, in Dallas in the 70s, said that um, that he would have been a better success if he'd actually stayed, stayed in L.A. longer, but the writer's strike had obviously moved him over to Detroit. And indeed, uh, Preston uh, frequently kind of um, had nostalgia for, you know, writing a, a script that would kind of kickstart her career again. Uh, believing that she was, you know, an incredible star and deserved top billing. And, you know, bearing in mind, you know, at the time, the 90s had rocked around. He was, um, you know, in his 70s. He was still positioning himself and utilising his years, of, to be fair, considerable experience, maybe not success, to kind of put himself at the heart of um, Dallas um, script writing and, and kind of teaching people. Um, so he's got lots of stories lots of experience he's kind of always been on the periphery though I do wonder what the uh, people who came to him and worked with him as a scriptwriter thought when they saw his only feature film Hollywood Horror a direct to video release back in the days when that was a new and exciting concept. It was actually to, uh, released by Sony. Would they uh, think in the same way that Preston did, that um, what actually happened was the producer had ruined the movie by uh, slipping in additional uh, credit, uh, additional moments? Or would they look at the uh, dialogue of the characters that he almost certainly did write and uh, feel to themselves that perhaps he was um, not quite being as honest with him as uh, as, the, as he should be in terms of whether he would, would or not have received uh, uh, aimed at success. So what is Honeymoon Horror? Well, it starts with a, an unusual concept in the fact that three couples who all knew each other and were sorority sisters decided all to get married on the same day. So young couples, young love, lust, and um, they go to Honeymoon Island, which is actually, uh, as as is filmed as well, Grapevine, uh, Texas. The, um, the Honeymoon Island is uh, stalked by uh, an ugly, unawful um, murderer who is uh, casting revenge after um, being burnt in a fight. 
so it's a couple of Elaine and Vic. And Elaine and Vic are, uh, are now, um, you know, we're having an affair. The husband rocks up. There's a fight, a fire. They think Elaine's husband has been, uh, has been killed, but he hasn't. Now, traditionally, and I think that's probably fair to say that you would know that he had been killed because there wouldn't be a friggin' body. But anyway. And I suppose, in a sense, therefore, it's a bit like the burning. You know, you've got young people on holiday. You've got a guy with a knife. Obviously, this is, you know, 82. It blatantly filmed before 82 because everyone looks like they're from the 70s, although, you know, you can never know with Texas fashion, I suppose. And, um... They are randomly picked off over a period of time, including uh, as well as a um, a, a woman with an incredible uh, Dick Van Dyke style Cockney accent, Gavna, kind of thing, um, and various sorority girls pop up as well um, to who are there under the pretense of helping to decorate the uh, the cabins that the girls are staying in, and they do that with. You know, signs saying, you know, married men do it better, and randomly skeletons to put in closets as well. So, in terms of the film's production, it's getting made, and um, the money runs out. So, it starts getting into various dial ups and dial downs in terms of when the film's actually going to be put together and when it's actually going to get released. The producer of the film, Malcolm Whitman um, panics and starts adding additional footage to pad out to make it up to 90 minutes, but also to kind of change the tone of the film so it's not so so bleak um, and uh, kind of expand the scope, I suppose. So what he does is he does almost the kind of what happens with... Uh, well, not what happens with... Because, I mean, you know, it, the sheriff scenes in uh, Last House on the Left are a deliberate decision, whereas this kind of feels like, you know, a panicked mode later on. But the, um, they put in comedic sheriff scenes, which cut up the action. Uh, it adds additional information. It also kind of ties the plot up in a far clearer way. Um, and doesn't finish the film in a rather, in fairness, what would have been quite a, a weird kind of um, almost stagey kind of ending um, where everyone just dies, you know what I mean, in, in the, in the centre of the, 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 uh, the floor. Well, not everyone, but, you know, some people die um, in a surprise kind of twist kind of way. Um, and then, you know, so the, these sheriff scenes are generally terrible. They're quite clearly being poorly edited together. They they have elements in terms of, um, you know, there's, it, it's um, two people talking and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously, you know, probably filmed on the same camera and then cut together. And it, it not only does it not look like two people who <laughs> are having a conversation, but it looks like they're in the, in the same car, you know. Um, and then there's, you know, painful pauses before the next guy speaks, which just means it's not being edited in a, in a consistent manner. And generally, the, um, the film was a difficult shoot. So they didn't pick the best place for it. So it's actually filmed in a... Although it's meant to be some kind of honeymoon retreat, it's actually filmed in a, a ranch, in, as I said, in Grapevine. Um, and it was close to the flight path, so the planes going over would, would cause them issues. Um, and they would 
they had limited um, resources in terms of space, so um, rooms were just kind of redecorated and changed, and the curtains were changed. You know, fake windows were put in, and, and, and curtains changed just to kind of give an impression of uh, of different spaces while they were kind of filming in the same place. So in America, the film was kind of bought by uh, Sony as a uh, part of its direct-to-video film line. Uh, and then was released in, in in bulk deals as part of you know video rentals. Um, so you know this is so they were shifting this stiff stuff in the UK. It'd be about fifty quid a pop. You know what I mean? They were expensive tapes. Um, and Sony picked it up and it bought it for how much it cost to make, basically because everyone was panicking whether they lose the money. So fifty thousand dollars, and apparently sold it allegedly. As the, the stories go, for over twenty-two million dollars, because they were Sony, so they sold it to every video store they could. Now, the success of the film is almost entirely not based on the film itself. In this sense, I mean, you know, there is an appetite for horror movies, no doubt, but the U.S. release has a fantastic, fantastic um, poster. Uh, something that we'd see, you know, the video market go time and time again. Something that, you know, you think about Charles Band and, you know, the, so the, front, the front covers of those films that he put out, like Ghoulies or um, Puppet Master or um, even go, something like Ghost Town. Those films have really strong, striking uh, VHS visuals, you know, central points of focus in the centre of the image and stuff like that. Honeymoon Horrors um, image is of a young a couple, 80s looking, on top of a bed with a uh, heart uh, and a flaming uh, skeleton with, a, with an axe until death do us part written on the heart. And it's all very dramatic looking. But it also is very much worth pointing out, completely unrelated to the film itself. I think we've all picked up films, you know, enticed by the cover. Um over the years when we were growing up and uh, a bit older maybe and then only to be bitterly disappointed with the shit you would receive and uh, I suppose this is an early example of that in terms of a film that you know it, it definitely was oversold shall we say so in terms of um, in the UK it was released on the AI label which is the same label that released um, Island of Death why would the film get picked up <sighs> naked women getting stabbed I mean it's hardly shocking in terms of stuff when you compare it to you know uh, a lot a lot of you know a lot of the other slasher movies that are knocking around there's certainly nothing in there that particularly catch the eye as being offensive however the link to Island of Death might have helped also because um, obviously you know there was not Sony label written anywhere near this you know it was picked up separately in an isolated international deal also the um, and in the, the the front cover is different um with a, a picture of a a, a, you know, a darkened figure, blatantly unrelated to the film, holding a massive fucking knife, and why kill all the women? So it, from that point of view, obviously, you know, it fits in with concerns about misogyny, sexualized violence, and of um, you know films that are generally unsuitable. So it could easily you know sit and look like it's part of this you know um, films where you know you just sit off for ninety minutes and watch women get in there you know, stabbed and slashed up. Oh, fucking hell, if only, you know. In the case of uh, Honeymoon Horror, what we get is uh, lots of um, quite, you know, lengthy chat, I think it's fair to say. 
That said, and in in fairness to to the film, there is there is stuff that is you know fun. It's a it's fun in the sense that it's some of the stuff that comes out of people's mouths is wild. And again, this comes back to this thought of what what did what did the students of Preston think if they ever you know rented out Honeymoon Horror, which apparently was still available even in the nineties at the uh, the video shop. When um, somebody turns around, for example, later on in the film, and suggests that maybe a hand grabbing a girl's leg uh, could just have been part of the bridge, doesn't make a huge amount of sense in terms of you know what what thought process would would that make sense in terms of oh don't worry it's probably just the bridge grabbing you I don't know but there's this certain elements all the way through it there um you know one of our um, honeymooners uh, just wants to go and um, you know uh, body build rather than uh, spend much much conjugal time with his uh, his new wife um, indeed some of the writing and direction would it does does allude to a Preston sexuality shall we say um, a, a man who's uh, joyfully flamboyantly gay um, you know this is it is a classic example of a, of a, of a piece of cinema where the women are all fully dressed for huge chunks of the film, and the men walk around completely fucking naked. Happy fucking days. Um, that all said, and when we go through the nasties list, for me, you know, you think about um, characters that pop up, um, you know, trash auteurs, shall we say. People who make a film because they desperately want to make a film. And this fits very much within that model. You think about uh, Andy Milligan. You think about um, well, fuck. There's loads in this list, you know, of, of people who have just gone out the way and made a film because they're so desperate to create a movie. And uh, it's very hard for me. I know, and we can be cynical and kind of like, oh, it's not very good, though, is it? But. There's something so heartwarming in this DIY aesthetic culture. In the same way, you know, we sh- I praised Cliff Tremlow's life last week, and I praise Harry Preston's life this week. A man who uh, lived, had a million anecdotes, a thousand stories, and even ninety books, toiling away at the uh, in the pulp and trash. Uh, genres um, which is a nobler pursuit as I can think of so in case you haven't guessed Harry actually died uh, despite the fact he was a, a, a heavy smoker the little bastard um, he died aged uh, 86 uh, in uh, 23rd of November 2009 so uh, always an indicator that it might not be the tabs that get you in the end um, well in Harry um he made a film that uh, incredibly uh, filled video stores across America and uh, even managed to get a little bit of infamy in the UK as well. So, is it available? No, <laughs> it's not. It really isn't. There's loads of VHS still knocking about. You can probably pick one up for, I don't know, uh, $70 maybe, US NTC, because there were, you know, loads and big they're only video shop ones though clamshells there hasn't been a dvd release there was never even a sell through vhs of this it was very much bought by sony flooded the market and then they walked away 
I wonder whether there is actually any of these films in terms of um, you know a you know a print left of them. I think whatever it's going to be, I think we might be looking at like in a Cliff Tremolo way or in like Suffer Little Children that it only exists in VHS now. Although obviously that wasn't the intention when it was made. So what we have is a a little bit of fragile history. So uh, as we praise Preston, we should keep hold of it and uh, nurture it as well. Although I will whisper this very quietly because it might not be by the time you, you listen to this. It is on YouTube at the moment. Thank you all for getting in touch. Uh, if you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is um, videonastypodcast at gmail.com. You can get me on uh, Twitter. It's at orange underscore monkey. Or you can go to the website, videonastypodcast.com, where there are all the episodes. Next week, we're going to be dealing with 1975 proto-slasher, The Love Butcher. So, look forward to speaking to you about that. Until then, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. I have never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, You've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. Over and out.